Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Gentlemen, welcome to the Air Canada fourth quarter and full year 2020 conference call. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Kathleen Murphy. Please go ahead, Ms. Murphy. Thank you, Elena, and good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on our fourth quarter and full year 2020 earnings call. With me this morning are Kaylin Robinescu, our President and Chief Executive Officer, Mike Russo, our Deputy Chief Executive Officer and Chief Financial Officer. Lucy Gilmet, our Executive Vice President and Chief Commercial Officer, and Craig Laundrie, our Executive Vice President of Operations. On today's call, Kayla will begin by giving you an overview of the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and related travel restrictions on Air Canada, what we have been doing in response, and how we view the future. Lucy will touch on travel demand, cargo, and loyalty, and Mike will provide you with visibility on current plans regarding cash burn rate, and liquidity before turning it back to Kaylin. We'll then open it up to questions from equity analysts, followed by questions from fixed income analysts. Before we get started, please note that certain statements made on this call are forward-looking within the meaning of applicable securities laws. This call includes references to non-GAAP measures. Please refer to our fourth quarter press release and MDNA, precautionary statements relating to forward-looking information, and for reconciliations of long-term measures to GAAP results. I will now turn it over to Kaylin. Thank you, Kathy. Uh, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on our fourth quarter and full year 2020 earnings call. In the fourth quarter of 2020, we recorded negative EBITDA of $728 million and an operating loss of $1 billion. Operating revenue declined 81% over the fourth quarter of 2019. For the full year, Air Canada recorded negative EBITDA of slightly over $2 billion and an operating loss of nearly $3.8 billion. Operating revenue for the year fell approximately 70% to $5.8 billion from $19.1 billion in the prior year. While undeniably grim, results such as these are being reported the world over in our industry due to the impact of COVID-19 and extremely onerous government-imposed travel restrictions, quarantines, and advisories. The six largest U.S. carriers recently reported cumulative net losses of U.S. $34 billion for 2020. And in Canada, we continue to contend with a patchwork of new and ever-changing travel restrictions that are stifling travel demand, impacting our ability to operate or plan, and even preventing us from formulating reliable financial guidance regarding the usual metrics. We're engaged directly and through our industry association in discussions with governments and other key stakeholders about a safe restart of aviation with more effective alternatives to blanket travel restrictions, especially as the pandemic begins to recede and we exit this crisis as we surely will. In the meantime, rather than allowing ourselves to be paralyzed by COVID's calamitous effects, we have been tenacious in our focus, implementing and refining an extensive COVID mitigation and recovery plan. It entails all aspects of our business, from our industry-leading additional safety measures for customers and employees, 
to diligently managing costs and seeking incremental revenue opportunities, to raising significant liquidity from capital markets, to setting in place the building blocks for success in the post-pandemic environment. Throughout the past year, we've been an industry leader in safety. We took immediate and decisive steps, such as halting flights to China, requiring facial coverings for our customers, and taking customers' temperature prior to boarding, well before federal government mandates to do so. Early on, we put in place an industry-leading, multi-layered biosafety program called Air Canada Clean Care Plus. We've also been early adopters and supporters of science-based measures, including various forms of COVID tests. We sponsored a study that was completed during the quarter and that tested international arrivals at Toronto Pearson Airport. It was the largest study of its kind in the world and was done in partnership with McMaster Health Labs and the Greater Toronto Airports Authority. Preliminary results based on 20,000 tests found 99% of participants tested negative for COVID-19. Of the 1% who did test positive, 70% were detected on arrival while the remaining 30% were detected by a test seven days later. This shows that testing is highly effective and that a 14-day quarantine is unnecessary for more than 99% of passengers and actually is much less effective than rigorous testing and tracing. The federal government, which joined the study when it was already underway, is now using these results as it evaluates new testing frameworks for the country. This is very important. For while vaccines hold great promise, we believe effective and robust testing is far and away the most immediate and practical way to protect communities, restart the economy by allowing a return to some of our normal activities and restore travel. For this reason, we continue to explore new testing technologies and protocols, including rapid PCR and rapid antigen tests for both employees in the workplace and potentially for customers. Another fundamental component of our COVID strategy is having the financial wherewithal to withstand a protracted downturn. We have been intently managing expenses, significantly reducing fixed costs, rationalizing our root network and building up our liquidity position. During the fourth quarter, we closed a share offering that raised an additional $850 million and concluded a sale and leaseback of nine Boeing 737 MAX for proceeds of $485 million. We ended the quarter and 2020 with unrestricted liquidity in excess of $8 billion, despite the massive cash burn during the year. Our ability to raise capital is evidence investors have shared our confidence in the resiliency of Air Canada and in its long-term prospects. We've also been developing new revenue opportunities, such as the expansion of Air Canada Cargo, which Lucy will discuss later. Cargo will be an increasingly important part of Air Canada's future going forward. We continue to pursue key programs that will be foundational to our long-term success. This included the completion of our new reservation system early in 2020 and the launch in November of our transformed Aeroplan program. Each of these will be good for customers, employees, and other stakeholders. They will also equip us to compete more effectively in the post-pandemic marketplace. However, we are also a global carrier, competing against other global carriers in a highly competitive and capital-intensive industry. Air Canada's relative strength must be seen in the context of the advantages our main competitors from other countries enjoy in terms of government support. IATA estimates governments around the world have provided in excess of $200 billion to their domestic carriers in sector support 
recognizing their key economic contributions. While Canada remains the lone G7 country that has thus far not provided any sector-specific support to aviation, thereby threatening in the long term competitiveness of Air Canada's airline industry. I am, however, very encouraged by the constructive nature of discussions that we have had with the Government of Canada on sector-specific financial support over the last several weeks. While there is no assurance at this stage that we will arrive at a definitive agreement on sector support, I am more optimistic on this front for the first time. Late yesterday afternoon, the Government of Canada approved our proposed acquisition of Transat, subject to a series of detailed conditions. We understand that many of you may have questions around the Government of Canada approval, our earnings release this morning, the European Commission's status, or next steps around our agreement with Transat. The proposed acquisition is a complex and sensitive matter, and our ability to expand on the current level of disclosure is framed by various confidentiality, governance, contractual, and other considerations. As such, we will not be providing any additional information at this point in time. I'd like to conclude this portion of my remarks by expressing my appreciation for and deep gratitude to our employees who, despite a year of turmoil and uncertainty, have demonstrated their professionalism and resilience and maintained their focus on serving our customers and transporting them safely. Over the past decade, as Air Canada went from strength to strength with its successful transformation, our employees always showed their unwavering commitment to our long-term vision, to our customers, and to our airline success. But character is only truly revealed when you encounter adversity, and out of adversity comes strength. I'm very proud that despite the year-long ravages of COVID-19, our employees' dedication and professionalism remain unshaken, and their determination to overcome the pandemic is now stronger than ever before. And with that, I will turn it over to Lucy. Thank you, Kaylin, and good morning, everyone. To start, I'd like to thank the incredible people across our airline for their resilience and commitment while we continue to navigate through the devastating impact of the pandemic. Passenger demand in the fourth quarter continued to be dramatically impacted as many countries coped with a second wave of COVID cases. As a result, our passenger revenues in the quarter decreased by 88% while operating 23% of our capacity compared to the same quarter in 2019. These results closed out the most challenging year Air Canada and our industry have ever faced. Our passenger revenues for the year, which eclipsed $17.2 billion in 2019, dropped by over 75%, or $12.9 billion, which is even more staggering when considering the negative impact of the pandemic and travel restrictions did not begin until March. Turning the corner into the first quarter of the new year, where we were planning a significantly reduced operation to some destinations, including Mexico, Costa Rica, and the Caribbean, we abruptly suspended all flights to this region for travel until April 30th. Together with the other Canadian airlines, we agreed to do this at the request of and to support the Government of Canada in its effort to curb the spread of COVID-19 and its variant and address concerns around spring break travel. Our focus quickly turned to repatriation efforts to bring Canadians home. The suspension of our Sun Network accompanied the announcement of two new major travel restrictions. 
In late January, a new te testing protocol was introduced requiring all incoming passengers to Canada to provide a negative COVID test prior to boarding. And more recently, the Canadian government announced the implementation of mandatory testing upon arrival with an up to three-day hotel quarantine at the traveler's expense while they wait for their test results. Following both these announcements, we saw an immediate impact on rate of cancellations for bookings on hand, as well as further slowdowns for future bookings. In order to mitigate further cash burn and best align our capacity with new levels of anticipated demand, we immediately announced further cuts to our planned first quarter capacity. In the first quarter of 2021, we now expect to operate approximately 17% of our capacity compared to the same quarter in 2020 and approximately 15% when compared to the same quarter of 2019. We will continue to dynamically adjust capacity and take other measures as required. We have been strong advocates of testing and will continue to seek all measures possible to ensure the safety of our employees and of our customers. While it is widely recognized that international travel is linked to less than 2% of COVID cases in Canada, it is also important to note that the new measures are in addition to the travel restrictions that the Government of Canada has had in place since March 2020, which are some of the most stringent in the world. This is an important factor when considering the difference in market recoveries between Air Canada and the major U.S. airlines and underscores why this is not an equitable comparison. Our reality is that even domestic travel remains largely stifled with the Atlantic provinces and Manitoba still requiring a 14-day quarantine for interprovincial travelers. Foreign nationals have been barred from entering the country since March for non-essential reasons, and all arrivals in the country, including Canadians, have been required to quarantine for 14 days. In addition to the multiple layers of travel restrictions in place, Canadians have also been warned not to travel by both the government and the media. For additional context, many of our domestic competitors in Canada were forced to cease operations for periods of 2020. However, as these restrictions are eased to provide for a safe path to recovery, and once vaccines are widely distributed, we are confident we will retain our market leadership position. Prior to the pandemic, we successfully and consistently executed on our commercial strategy. We developed competitive advantages that will be foundational to our recovery and will equip us to emerge stronger and nimbler. We are ready to build back our airline and welcome pent-up customer demand. We understand recovery will take time and we will proceed strategically, always realistic yet optimistic. Our modern and efficient fleet has been further simplified with fewer fleet types overall and is going to be a competitive advantage in our recovery. Our Boeing 787 aircraft remains the cornerstone of our international fleet, serving the hub to hub routes and select core markets that make up our current skeleton network. Within North America, we are fully leveraging our new Airbus 220 aircraft, and we welcome back our Boeing 737 MAX into service on February 1st, after it received all the necessary regulatory approvals. These aircraft represent the backbone of our fleet and will enable the gradual redevelopment of our network. Throughout the pandemic, our agility has been on full display and our ability to accurately and effectively allocate capacity to seize unique market opportunities will be pivotal as various customer segments begin to recover. In light of the more resilient visiting friends and relatives or VFR market segment, 
we entered into a new commercial agreement with Qatar Airways, facilitating our non-stop service from Toronto to Doha, which commenced in mid-December. In addition to Doha, we will be launching our seasonal non-stop service to Cairo from Montreal this summer to serve another market with a high concentration of VFR traffic. In December, we offered customers our all-business class Air Canada Jets experience to popular holiday destinations in the Sun and U.S. markets. This initiative, along with our expansion into unique markets, illustrates our agility and our ability to quickly pivot and capture opportunities that arise. With customer and employee safety at the forefront, we have demonstrated industry leadership in developing our Clean Care Plus program. We've also undertaken several medical collaborations to continue advancing biosafety across the customer journey and our business, including with the Cleveland Clinic to advise on our efforts and with Shoppers Drug Mart to provide our customers the opportunity to take a pre-departure COVID test at select locations in Ontario, BC and Alberta, among several other innovative collaborations. We are also the first Canadian airline to offer customers the safety and convenience of boarding using facial biometrics. The technology is now available for customers departing from San Francisco International Airport, and we plan to expand it to other U.S. airports soon and will explore viable options for expansion into Canada. To recognize our achievements in biosafety, last month we received the Diamond Certification from the Airline Passenger Experience Association, or APEX. This unrelenting focus on safety will remain a focal point to our product offering, and we will continue to strive to be leaders in deploying biosafety technology as it becomes available. In November 2020, we successfully launched our Transform Aeroplan program in a seamless cutover to state-of-the-art technology platforms, delivering what we believe to be best-in-class loyalty program which will serve as another foundational element to our recovery. The program has garnered very positive feedback in its engagement since its inception. During the quarter, to support our loyalty efforts, we secured additional strategic anchor partnerships, including with J.P. Morgan Chase in the U.S. These new partnerships will deliver loyalty member growth and additional revenue, and we look forward to revealing more of them in 2021. Looking to Airplan's performance in the fourth quarter, member engagement and activity continue to show resiliency. Co-brand credit card spend continues to recover with categories most impacted by the pandemic, such as travel, largely offset by other categories, for example, retail e-commerce. Overall spend for the quarter was within 13% of last year's level, while card retention rates continue to be in line with historical norms. Looking to our cargo performance, our cargo revenue of $286 million in the fourth quarter represented an increase of $100 million, or 53%, compared to the same quarter in 2019. With global air freight demand remaining strong, we ended the year having operated over 4,200 all-cargo international flights. In December alone, we operated over 150 all-cargo flights per week using a combination of Boeing 787, Boeing 777 aircraft, as well as four converted Boeing 777s and three converted Airbus A330 aircraft. This line was necessary to support our customers during the peak holiday season, demonstrating our commitment to serving our customers and fulfilling their needs by maintaining the critical air freight supply chain in the midst of the pandemic. As a result of our quick pivot to all cargo flights at the onset of the pandemic and with close 
coordination and partnership with our customers, our cargo business delivered more than 920 million of revenue in 2020, or 28% from 2019. As we discussed last quarter, we're very excited with our entry into e-commerce sector, launching our first deliveries directly to people's homes in the fourth quarter. This program, in cooperation with local retailers, takes advantage of our domestic passenger network, facilitating the end-to-end -end distribution of e-commerce goods across Canada, and offers logistics and delivery solutions for online retailers that are simply faster and easier than what's available to Canadian online shoppers today. We expect to officially launch a new branded platform soon. We intend to keep building the cargo business, and last quarter we announced our plan to convert and utilize our own Boeing 767 aircraft to dedicated freighters. Since our announcement, we've worked with our pilot group to help facilitate a flying structure that will allow us to effectively compete in the market and reached an agreement with our pilots in the quarter in support of this initiative. Our first two freighters are expected to be in service in time for this year's fourth quarter peak air freight season. In closing, I'd like to reiterate that Air Canada's commercial foundation has arguably never been more solid than it is today. For the first time in nearly two decades, Air Canada will have a fully modernized narrow-body fleet comprised of the versatile and fuel-efficient Airbus 220 and Boeing 737 MAX. These will allow us to operate within the domestic and trans-border markets with compelling economics. Our wide-body fleet has best-in-class seating density with the lowest dependency on premium revenue, which allows us to excel in a recovery period where VFR and leisure travel rebound quickest. Our hubs of Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal each have a large and diverse multicultural population base that enables a quicker recovery relative to competing hubs on the North America continent. Unlike Australia and New Zealand, Canada's geography sits right in the middle of two of the busiest travel corridors in the world, in the US to Europe and US to Pacific markets. Nearly all commercial flights on these segments overfly Canadian airspace, and we will continue to push to ensure we receive our fair share of these traffic flows through our hubs. This represents not only a major element of our recovery strategy, it is also an example of how Canada as a country can best compete in the global aviation market. We also have solid global airline partnerships, namely in the form of our transatlantic A++ joint venture with the Lufthansa Group and United Airlines, which will ensure we access as many markets as possible on a one-stop basis as we seek to rebuild our network over the coming years. Our services to the Lufthansa Group hubs in Europe have consistently performed well for us throughout the decade, and we expect this to continue for the foreseeable future. As mentioned on previous calls, Air Canada is seeking to add additional global airline partnerships, which will further propel our recovery. Despite the temporary grounding of Air Canada Rouge, it will continue to play a major role in our network with particular focus on North America leisure markets, where it helped us sustain and profitably grow our leisure flying over the decades. Lastly, as I've mentioned, our investments in cargo will allow us to further diversify and add additional strength to our revenue streams and ensure we capitalize on the booming global e-commerce freight segment. With this solid foundation, coupled with customer experience enhancements achieved through the launch of our new reservations and departure control systems, I can unequivocally say that Air Canada is ready for the recovery and well-positioned to compete in the post-COVID environment. We are very much looking forward to welcoming our customers back on board. 
With that, I will pass it off to Mike. Thank you, Lucy. And I would like to thank everyone for joining us on the call today. I offer a heartfelt thank you to our employees for their deep commitment and hard work throughout a very challenging 2020. Your unwavering dedication to our customers and the airline has been and will continue to be a key strength and instrumental in our recovery. In the first quarter of 2020, we initiated a company-wide fixed cost reduction and capital reduction and deferral program as a result of COVID-19. Our initial goal was 500 million. I'm pleased to report that we completed this program having achieved reductions or deferrals of 1.7 billion for 2020. Fixed costs were reduced in a number of areas, including wages and salaries, maintenance, airport user fees, real estate, technology, and regional airlines. Improving productivity and processes also contributed to lowering our fixed cost structure. It is certainly our objective as we recover to keep the majority of the fixed costs that we've eliminated from creeping back in, thereby lowering our break-even point and enhancing operating margins. We have an incredible team in place dedicated to pursuing additional cost reduction initiatives for cash preservation, and this focus will continue into the future. Lean management and disciplined cost control are part of our DNA and are key elements of our recovery plan. Our investments in more efficient aircraft, our decisions to aggressively retire older, less efficient aircraft, and our investments in key customer-facing technology, such as the AeroPlan and passenger sales booking systems, and further streamlining and enhancing airport operations also contributed and will continue to lower our fixed operating expenses. As we adjust capacity to better align with the market, our team remains centered on managing fixed and variable costs efficiently and, and assessing any opportunity we have for diversifying our operating revenues. I'll touch now briefly on our operating expenses in the quarter. On a capacity reduction of 77%, excluding depreciation, amortization, and special events, fourth quarter of 2020 operating expenses decreased almost $2.2 billion, or 59%, from the same quarter in 2019. Wages, salary, and benefits were $507 million, or 38% below the fourth quarter of 2019, driven by a 46% decline in our full-time equivalent employees. The major management and frontline workforce reductions we completed in 2020 were a difficult but necessary step in reducing costs and preserving cash. In the fourth quarter of 2020, we concluded two financing transactions, the first being the sale and lease back of nine Boeing 737 MAX for a total proceeds of $485 million, and towards the end of the quarter, an equity offering for proceeds of $850 million. And then subsequent to year-end, we raised an additional $62 million through the exercise of the over-allotment option by the underwriters. Furthermore, we recently extended the maturities of our U.S. $600 million and Canadian $200 million revolving lines of credit by one year. Since the pandemic began, we've raised almost $7 billion through drawdowns of credit facilities, secured financings, equity and convertible note offerings, and the sale leaseback transactions I just mentioned. We ended the year with $8 billion of unrestricted liquidity, providing us operational flexibility and certainly supporting our COVID-19 recovery plan. Our unencumbered asset pool, excluding the value of AeroPlan, Air Canada Vacations, and Air Canada Cargo, totaled approximately $1.7 billion at December 31st. 
This pool is comprised of accounts receivables, spare engines, spare parts inventory, some aircraft, simulators, and real estate. The decrease of approximately 100 million in the value of this pool since we last reported this number in November was primarily due to the impact of a stronger Canadian dollar versus the US dollar. And we are certainly confident that we can utilize this collateral package and other assets should we need to access additional financing facilities. Turning to cash burn, in the fourth quarter of 2020, net cash burn of $1.4 billion, or approximately $15 million per day on average, was in line with our expectations. Net cash burn, after including proceeds of the aircraft financing related to the delivery of the five Airbus 220 aircraft in the fourth quarter of 2020, was $12 million per day on average. For 2021, we've updated our definition of net cash burn to include net financing proceeds received related to aircraft deliveries as these proceeds reduce net cash flows related to invest, investing, investing activities. Looking forward at the first quarter, we estimate net cash burn of $15 million to $17 million per day on average. This net cash burn projection includes $4 million per day in lease and debt service costs and $2 million per day in net capital expenditures. The increased projected net cash burn versus the fourth quarter average net cash burn of $12 million per day is primarily due to lower EBITDA and lower advanced ticket sales and other working capital items. In addition, the net capital expenditure increased $1 million per day compared to the fourth quarter of 2020. Just turning to pensions, at the end of 2020, Air Canada had assets of $23.9 billion in its defined benefit pension plans, more than double what they were in 2009. And the plans continue to see strong investment returns in 2020 with an average rate of return of 17.6%, a first decile performance. As you know, several years ago, we implemented a new strategy focused on reducing the risks associated with our pension plans by matching the pension liabilities with fixed income products, reducing a significant portion of the interest rate risk associated with these plans, while better diversifying our return-seeking portfolio to continue generating the strong returns needed to pay pensions. This risk mitigation strategy has been a success. Not only does it help protect employee and retired defined benefit pensions, but it resulted in our domestic registered pension plans reporting solvency surpluses over the last five years, which in turn reduces our annual pension funding costs. In fact, we even won the Pension Risk Management Award in 2020 due to the success of our strategy. On a preliminary basis, at the start of 2021, the aggregate solvency surplus in our Canadian defined pension plan was $3 billion, an increase of $400 million from January 1st, 2020. Before, before turning it over to Kaylin, I'd like to thank employees once again for their dedication and hard work. I am confident that together we can successfully manage through these tremendously challenging times and rebuild Air Canada into a global champion. I look forward to my new role as President and Chief Executive Officer of Air Canada. It has truly been a privilege to work with Kaelin over the last several years, and I'm extremely grateful for his vote of confidence and that of the Board of Directors. And with that, I'll turn it back to Kaelin. Thank you, Mike. <clears throat> as you are all aware, this is my final analyst call before my retirement. So it seems appropriate that I conclude with a few remarks on why I am absolutely confident about the future of our company under the extremely capable leadership of Mike and the entire senior leadership team and by the very strong financial position we've managed to achieve. 
Above all, it must be remembered that the effects of COVID-19 are transitory, whereas the solid foundations built over the past 12 years are permanent. Our airline has been transformed in all its aspects. It will emerge from the pandemic, still a Canadian global champion, with a powerful footprint and brand. There's little doubt that we will rebuild our global network. Over the past decade, we had effectively doubled our airline's reach to more than 100 international destinations before COVID-19 forced a retrenchment, a retrenchment that I know is temporary. At the peak, we were one of a handful of carriers to serve all six inhabited continents, and we will return to this again. Already, even amidst the seemingly relentless cutbacks, we have begun taking tentative steps, such as our new partnership with Qatar Airways and a planned new service to Cairo. Helping in the rebuild will be our Star Alliance partners and our revenue-sharing joint venture with Air China across the Pacific and A++ on the Atlantic. In addition, we have a wealth of co-chair and interline agreements that give us access to every corner of the earth. To best serve this network, we have rationalized our fleet. We've removed 79 older aircraft and added next generation fuel-efficient aircraft. Beyond improving our operating economics, this will also help us meet our environmental and other ESG goals in the interest of all stakeholders and rightly of increasing importance to the investment community. Our wide-body fleet includes the Boeing 777 aircraft with its competitive chasm and a seat configuration ideally suited to the high-volume leisure and VFR markets that we expect to rebound first. These are complemented by the Boeing 787 aircraft with its lower operating costs, mid-sized capacity, and range flexibility. We're also renewing the narrow-body fleet. We're replacing older, less efficient aircraft with modern and fuel-efficient Airbus A220 and Boeing 737 MAX aircraft types. The A220's range capabilities and economics create greater deployment opportunities, enabling Air Canada to serve new markets ill-suited to larger narrow-body aircraft. This month, we returned the Boeing 737 to service. Its range gives us added network flexibility, maintenance cost advantages, and greater fuel efficiency than the aging narrow-body aircraft they are replacing. Further supporting our network, our Air Canada's Toronto Global Hub, as Lucy mentioned, and its gateway hubs of Vancouver and Montreal. Not only are these hubs well-positioned to capture global traffic flows, but have the benefit of a strong local multicultural population base to help sustain our international network with both origin and destination traffic. Despite the severe restrictions imposed by COVID-19, we have not forgotten the vital and differentiating importance of customer service. We provide a customer experience enhanced by competitive products and services, including live flat seats in the signature class cabin, concierge services, Maple Leaf lounges, and the Air Canada signature suites, onboard amenities such as in-flight entertainment and Wi-Fi, and a range of fair products tailored to appeal to each market segment. Prior to COVID-19, Air Canada was named best airline in North America for eight of 10 years, and it remains North America's only four-star network carrier by Skytrax. Our focus on customer-friendly innovation has carried on throughout COVID with new touchless airport services and technology like biometric boarding. These innovations will remain in place post-COVID-19 because they are convenient and can speed airport passage. Further enriching the customer experience and securing loyalty will be the transformed Aeroplan program relaunched in November. The program now offers a wide range of new features such as improved value on flight rewards, Aeroplan family sharing, 
the ability to use aeroplan points for travel extras such as cabin upgrades and in-flight Wi-Fi, and expanded merchandise rewards. Elite status members have access to new benefits, including priority rewards and status paths. To further leverage our loyalty program and drive profitability, there are new Aeroplan co-branded credit cards issued by TD Bank, American Express, and CIBC. In late 2020, JP Morgan Chase and Air Canada announced a strategic partnership that will make Chase the exclusive issuer of the airline's Aeroplan U.S. credit card, giving us wider access to the U.S. loyalty market. Air Canada has many other attributes, some of which, such as our rich heritage, predate our transformation. But a final element that, frankly, I regard as most important of all is the entrepreneurial culture that has taken deep root at our airline. That culture and the strong commitment and just-do-it mindset of our employees is now ingrained in our DNA and was fully on display as we responded to the COVID crisis. So while my tenure is ending, I know that Air Canada's continued pursuit of excellence with Mike's leadership will not end. Air Canada will continue to innovate and evolve, always focused on safety and the customer and enhancing new products and services. Thank you. Now we'd be pleased to take some uh, questions, operator. Thank you. If you have a question and you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset prior to making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your device's keypad. If at any time you wish to cancel your question, please press the pound sign. Please press star 1 at this time. If you have a question, there will be a brief pause while the participants register. Thank you for your patience. The first question is from Konark Gupta with Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Thanks, and uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, good morning. Uh, my first question is on uh, the Q1 uh, cash fund guidance. Um, so we, we obviously know the Mexico Caribbean flight suspensions you announced, and there's there's some incremental international routes. Uh, just wondering um, if this guidance reflects uh, the new uh, hotel quarantine rule that has been proposed by the government. Uh, not sure if that has been implemented yet, uh, but just curious as to your thoughts. What's included in this guidance, and is there any conservatism baked in in case some of these decisions or rules do not uh, materialize? Good morning, it's Mike. Uh, we, we have estimated the impact of that and it, and it is included in our guidance. Okay, thanks Mike. And, and any sense on when this rule is going to be in effect, uh, the hotel quarantine? Uh, we would say over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and the government has indicated, uh, you know, sort of notionally mid-February, which of course is where we are now. But I would say, as Mike says, over the next couple of weeks, and it's you know, possible that we could see announcements uh, very shortly. Okay, thanks. Uh, and a long-term question, uh, perhaps on the fleet. Um, so it looks like you have already removed about 46 aircraft uh, out of the planned 79, and I think uh, you're keeping some Airbus AC-19s for some more time. So with the 34 aircraft coming between, call it A220 and MAX through 2023, and probably the 33 A319s going out uh, over this time frame, um, it looks like the fleet size should be stable at current levels uh, for Mainline and Rouge. Uh, and that would be about 20% versus the pre-pandemic levels. So the question is, um, I understand the MAX was grounded in 2019 uh, before the pandemic, but how much of the pre-pandemic capacity can you achieve with this 20% smaller fleet uh, in the long term? Yeah. It's Mike again. I, great question and something that we've been heavily focused on because uh, we want to balance uh, flexibility 
with, uh, with the recovery plan as well. Uh, there's no doubt the Airbus 319, uh, which we own for the most part, provide a fair amount of flexibility over the next couple of years. Uh, they're good aircraft for us and uh, they, they uh, again do provide us a fair amount of flexibility. To specifically answer your question, uh, the current fleet plans as, as it sits um, does get us back fairly close to 2019 levels. Uh, and, and we're comfortable with that uh, because we can all, if the recovery happens quicker, which we hope it does, uh, there are planes available in the marketplace that we can chase. And we will, and we, we know where those planes are and we'll certainly take full advantage of that. But we think we found the right balance between, uh, you know, risk management and, and, you know, taking full advantage of a quick recovery. Okay, no, that, that makes sense. Uh, and the last one for me, um, you, you mentioned about the operating leverage, uh, given the fixed costs you have taken out of the system and intention to not uh, fully uh, uh, creep back those fixed costs when, when the recovery takes place. Um, can you help us understand, uh, you know, how do you look at the, the long-term picture with the fleet plan you said uh, gives you full capacity? Uh, where does profitability sit in that scenario uh, compared to 19% or so you had pre-pandemic? Or is it possible because of the aeroplan, uh, you know, um, being more incremental here, uh, perhaps, and the max coming back, did you think the margin probably has more upside uh, beyond 19% with this capacity? Certainly, uh, we can't provide the guidance right now, but, but certainly a lot of the key elements are in place. Uh, our fixed cost structure is down. Uh, we, are, we have much more efficient planes in our fleet, and we have a much stronger aero plan program to, to leverage. And so certainly our objective is to, to enhance margins uh, as, as we recover. And we certainly seem to have the, the strategic initiative to do so. That's great. Uh, thanks for the color. Thank you. The next question is from Andrea Key with Wolf Research. Please go ahead. Oh, hi. I think that's me, actually. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, this is Hunter. So, uh, Lucy, if, 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 if we um, assume business travel gradually improves over the next few years, how are your views on, on how the uh, long-haul premium cabin market demand will evolve along with it? Hi, it's, uh, it's Lucy. Um, so we, we, we definitely assume that the business traffic will return. Um, and we feel uh, certainly for the North America markets that we are going to have, um, you know, the perfect product with the, the 220s and the 737s. I mean, you know, basically it's a unique, uh, you know, product for premium. And on the international front, on the long haul markets, we are in a bit of a unique uh, opportunity here because our cabins, when you look at the actual LOPA that we have on our wide-body airplanes, we're perfectly positioned to be able to see this demand ramp up, but also at the same time take advantage of the you know, more VFR markets. So because our, our LOPAs in the premium long-haul markets are so efficient, uh, we feel that we will, we will be in a very good position when, when the demand starts to return. Thank you, Lucy. And then, um, I was wondering uh, if you might talk briefly about um, the, the potential for government aid in the context of, of what's on the table. And we, we saw Sunwing obviously reach an agreement, uh, and I think they had a framework of some, uh, some customer refunds embedded in there. Uh, if you could talk about that maybe as a template for how you guys are, are framing the conversation and fold in any conversations you may be having about potential um, domestic 
testing mandates, if, if that's on the table, if you've heard anything about that. Thanks okay, so much. Hi, Andrew. It's Caleb. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what I can, and obviously there are some restrictions uh, around what I can't. So, uh, mm -hmm. basically, uh, the government announced in November a desire to get into dialogue with the uh, larger carriers uh, to try to establish a framework for a sector-specific program. That was announced on or about November the 6th. Uh, but I would say that uh, this is why I referenced in the press release of today that uh, really for the first time uh, we view that the discussions uh, uh, got to a, a, a more advanced nature over the last uh, several weeks. So we had not previously made any statements about our expectations or perspectives or views on sector support. Uh, today we felt uh, comfortable to, to include that statement in our uh, release of this morning and of course I referenced it as well in, the, in, the, uh, in, in my comments uh, to the analyst community. Uh, so what does that mean? That means that uh, basically the discussions have picked up a pace that I would characterize as more of a negotiation that is more in, in line with something that leads to an outcome uh, and I'm more confident that there can be an outcome now than I was uh, say a month ago. Uh, uh, but of course with the usual caveats as I indicated both in the release and in my remarks. There's no, no guarantee, but I am uh, really for the first time confident. That does include the uh, three policy-related uh, considerations that uh, government mentioned in November, which we restated in our, in our press release of this morning, namely uh, a, uh, uh, an agreement on refunds, uh, an understanding on uh, uh, regional routes and a return to uh, regional, uh, some of the regional markets. Um, as, as well as uh, some uh, form of support for the aerospace uh, sector. And so those are you know, forming part of the discussion. Of course, I can't elaborate on any of those three, but I, my, our expectation is that there will be uh, you know, something on all of those uh, three that will come up. Um, and I think that the, you know, our discussions uh, uh, are, of course, different. Uh, our financial position is different. Our size is different. Our global footprint and our regional footprint is different than than uh, Sunwing, and so I think the kind of agreement that we're looking to establish is different than what they would have had, I would say. Um, and uh, that's probably as much as I can say on the topic at this stage, uh, Hunter. Um, on the second point, on the, on the testing, uh, uh, we have, as you heard uh, in my remarks, you know, we, we, are, we pride ourselves at really being at the forefront of, uh, of, of uh, what has gone on in Canada in the testing environment. We, uh, did that uh, largest uh, you know, of its kind in the world test with the McMaster Health Labs uh, on arrival testing that uh, you know, had a tremendous amount of data, very rich data that is now being assessed. Um, and we really believe that the, uh, that, that the uh, silver bullet here is uh, a uh, uh, very, very uh, uh, you know, uh, effective uh, testing protocol that, uh, that replaces the blanket restrictions, that replaces the quarantines. And we've been making that case to government. We've been making it uh, both privately and publicly. Uh, we, we have tremendous amount of science uh, behind our, our data. Um, and that really the next step is to ensure that we have something that shows that the quarantine can in the first instance uh, be reduced, you know, uh, consistent with the, uh, uh, with the various authorities, including the WHO, uh, the, the CDC and so on. The, uh, we're, we're, these are all uh, uh, Center for Disease Control uh, you know, these are all uh, indicators that the quarantine is more appropriate five to seven days. And so we will continue to make that uh, case. And with testing on arrival, uh, that does provide uh, a lot of flexibility to ensure that we quarantine the people who need to be quarantined, who have some, uh, you know, some uh, 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 traces of the infection, 
um, uh, and to uh, oh, the virus, I should say, and and to uh, and to let the people who are not uh, who don't have the virus uh, go or have a reduced quarantine. So those discussions are ongoing. Uh, part of the discussion around the uh, the sun destinations, and you saw that uh, both in our remarks as well as in the prime minister's remarks. If you those that are interested in reading the prime minister's remarks around uh, around this. Prime Minister clearly indicated in his remarks around the uh, suspension of the Sun destinations that working collaboratively with the Canadian carriers, it would be seen as being a pathway to, to replacing uh, at the right time uh, the, uh, the, the blanket travel restrictions, quarantines, uh, you know, other prohibitions with a uh, testing uh, uh, regime um, and science-based measures. And so that is directionally where this has to go. Um, right now, that date is April 30th, is the date by which uh, we expect that the sun destination restrictions are lifted, and quite frankly, that's the date by which we expect that there would be a improved dynamic with respect to uh, testing, replacing, uh, you know, to some degree, uh, quarantines. Well, thank you, Kaylin. Thank you. The next question is from Kevin Chang with CIBC. Please go ahead. Thank you for taking my question, and, and congratulations again, Kaylin, on, on your retirement here. Um, maybe, uh, maybe, Lucy, just, just on your cargo uh, comments, obviously that has been a silver lining for, for the airline in 2020. You have the two coming in later this year. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you've allocated up to potentially seven 767s that could be converted over time. Just wondering how you think of the timeline of converting more aircraft to, to take advantage of the elevated uh, and, and strong freight market, both domestically and internationally. And, and what, what are things that we should be looking for as you make that decision of expanding the fleet from, from, from more than two? Uh, so you're, you're correct. In fact, uh, the number is uh, seven. Is it's what we are looking to uh, uh, to do? Um, one other comment, though, on, on the cargo front, keeping in mind that uh, you know as we progress through this uh, this uh, period here, you know we have maintained some of our international services, um, and even if you know on some of those uh, international flights, the passenger demand may be a little bit low. Um, we continue to operate those flights in many cases because we have, um, you know, an opportunity on the, on the uh, cargo front. So as we, you know, navigate our way through the arrival of the, uh, the 767s, we continue to have opportunity with Belly on flights that we, we uh, operate. And, uh, we, you know, we look to have conversions over time uh, for the, you know, the following uh, five. Okay, okay. And Kevin, just, uh, to, just, yep. Kevin Mike, just to provide a little more color on the conversions, I mean, we'd love to have all seven up and operating by the end of next year. Uh, you know, these, these are typically a little bit of a longer process, and, and slots are not really available. Uh, but uh, we are certainly working on uh, on having all seven up and running by uh, by the by Q4 of next year. Oh, that's 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 perfect. That, that that's very helpful. Uh, maybe just last one for me here, and I'll turn it over on the Aeroplan partnership with J.P. Morgan. Um, you know, you're, you're you're looking to tap into to, to the U.S. market here with your loyalty program. Uh, just wondering if there's anything I can infer in terms of how you think about Six Freedom traffic coming out of coming out of this pandemic, and, and maybe specifically how, how you think about your transborder network in, in a recovery. Is, is that an area of, of maybe greater strength? Is that what I should be reading into as I think about this? 
this push by by, by Aeroplan into into the U.S. Yes, Kevin. Let me. I'll start. And I'll turn it over to Lucy. Yeah, exactly. Look, I think that for us, we know that the six freedom traffic has been a big part of our decade. That was a big, very, very specific strategic driver that we identified, went after, uh, and you know, as we built our international network, uh, the, the six freedom market from the U.S. was a very big component of that, and and uh, it served us extremely well. And we, you know, you'd often see on, on flights to many of our European destinations a lot of U.S. traffic uh, on board. Uh, uh, for sure, we would love to return to those days, but obviously with the border restrictions uh, as they are and the complexity, we know that that's going to take a little bit of time to, to recover. Uh, and so as the, as the uh, uh, recovery occurs, as the border restrictions are lifted, uh, we certainly expect Aeroplan and the Chase partnership to be a key tool to giving some, some rebirth to that six freedom traffic. But you know, certainly our expectation is that it's not an overnight kind of a thing, certainly while the travel restrictions are in place. Uh, Lucy, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, the one thing I'd like to add as well is, you know, keeping in mind that the recovery will be not just in Canada, obviously the recovery will be around the world. Um, so for, for us, when you compare what we can offer on a one-stop basis connecting over Canada, um, basically it becomes a product that's very similar to what many of the U U.S. carriers are going to be operating as they also recover. So there's less non-stop flying, uh, which also means that, you know, for us, the opportunity is even bigger. And as we start to rebuild our transborder network, uh, we're going to do that with obviously an eye on the six freedom market as well. So we'll be sure that as we reintroduce our transborder flying, it, it you know, connects well into our, our uh, international product. But there's absolutely no doubt that as we move forward, this will be a bigger opportunity even than it was in the past for us. Thank you for the insight. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Walter Spracklin with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. And, and yes, best of luck there, Kaylin, on your, on your retirement. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, so uh, you know, let, let's ignore Transat altogether and just uh, ask the question, if, if the government were to institute a price, uh, a price monitoring mechanism, uh, how, how would it do that? So first of all, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, we would view any uh, restriction on, on uh, pricing as obviously being some form of you know, re-regulation of pricing, which would not be uh, a good dynamic all around. But if, if one was to institute a monitoring system, a monitoring system means a, you know, sort of a reporting as to how markets have evolved over some you know, period of time, snapshot at a period of time. And I think that that is uh, all that, uh, that uh, references. Okay. It's just a uh, you know, sort of retrospective analysis of uh, pricing trends. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That that may that that's that's that makes sense. Um, Kayla, when you look at or or Michael either either when when you look at the different government support um, uh, packages or, or 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 frameworks that have been provided around the world uh, in different jurisdictions, what ones would you say uh, would fit very well? For Air Canada uh, in a Canadian context, in other words, what you know, what what, what seems to, to to in your mind uh, be a reasonable, achievable, and very uh, effective uh, government support program that you've seen some in another jurisdiction? I think uh, Walter, the one that's closest to our hearts is is some some modification of the U.S. CARES Act. Uh, 
Um, you know, that had two, di two different p uh, pieces, obviously, a fairly uh, you know, aggressive uh, payroll support program, and then a, uh, a loan program um, over a five-year period. And, and so, there, you know, we compete with the U.S. airlines, so we think uh, that a similar program, uh, maybe with some Canadian modifications, uh, would, uh, would best suit uh, the airline industry up here in Canada. The thing that I would add, Walter, to that is that uh, you also have to bear in mind timing, right? You know, we have the time, place, and circumstance. So, like now, we're talking about this a year later than almost a year later than the U.S. Uh, talked about and received the CARES program, which means that you end up doing things, uh, uh, you know, in, in the consequence of, of that decision. And so, the things that we had to do last year, including burning the amount of liquidity, taking out aircraft as we have, allowing other competitors, and you've heard, uh, you know, ourselves and other Canadian carriers make the statement that several. Uh, international and U.S. competitors managed to, you know, continue, in, you know, growing and improving, uh, relative, relatively speaking, in a, in a shrunken market. Uh, uh, so, you know, that has to be taken into account as well. The fact is that we're talking about this one year later than most of the other, uh, you know, uh, large carriers of the world received support from their governments. And so, that uh, that has to be looked at through that lens because what might have otherwise been acceptable a year ago may be different uh, at this point in time. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, uh, just on cargo, uh, I've, I've looked at your 767s primarily as dedicated toward your international cargo opportunity. You're talking now about an e-commerce that sounds like a domestic, but that's that, that seems to be uh, belly capacity uh, aimed toward the e-commerce customer, correct me if I'm wrong, and if that's the case, what, how would that impact your regular passenger business? In other words, if it's different than the capa belly capacity that you provided before, whatever makes that different, different is that going to negative, at all negatively impact your passenger airline uh, capabilities? Walters, Mike, no, you're right in your assumptions. Um, but we do not believe it's going to have any impact on our passenger uh, because we do have excess space available in our bellies uh, going across the country. And so we're looking at utilizing that asset much more efficiently uh, as we go forward. Yeah, Lucy, I would just add as well, if you look at um, some of the you know core markets within domestic Canada, Transcon, for example, we already have wide-body aircraft that operate on some of those routes to accommodate some of that cargo demand, and we still have you know plenty of room to be able to to accommodate it, so it would not have an impact on our North America network at all. And thank you very much. And just a housekeeping, uh, you included cash financing in your cash burn. Can you indicate how much cash fin or financing is included in your new guidance for Q1? I think it's uh, two million dollars a day. Two million a day. Okay, that's all my questions. Thanks. Thanks very much, everyone. Thanks, thanks Walter, and for the rest of the uh, community here, we have uh, a heart stop at around five to ten because of uh, uh, Mike and I uh, are needed at, at a, uh, our board meeting. So just to be mindful of the uh, length of the questions. Thanks. Thank you. The next question is from Asavi Scythe with Raymond James. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, just to follow up on, on the answer to Hunter's question on, on t testing replacing quarantines on April 30th, I was wondering if you could uh, kind of share what's magical about that date. Is, is that, you know, when you think there's sufficient supply and infrastructure in place? Is it, you know, um, improvements on the vaccine front or kind of just exiting winter season? Just wondering why, why April 30th? Right, right. No, that's a great question, Tavi. So, uh, first of all, the, the April 30th uh, starts with the fact that that was the date that was uh, 
uh, requested by government in connection with our uh, the Canadian industry suspending flying to the uh, sun destinations of the Caribbean and Mexico. Uh, we also have looked at that date as being the, the uh, reasonable date, and that is you know, sort of from our uh, perspective uh, as, a, as a reasonable proxy for a date by which we get out of the colder uh, winter uh, season and get into a uh, summer dynamic, uh, and, uh, and, and also allowing for enough time to establish more comprehensive taste testing capabilities, because this does take some time. It cannot be done overnight. So, uh, you know, given the, the government's request on April 30 being the sun destinations, the government's statements around uh, the summer uh, being a period of time where we'll open up to domestic Canada, uh, because remember, we still have restrictions in many of the provinces of Canada, so we need to open up domestic Canada for travel freely, and as well at that having enough time to establish you know, testing capabilities, because of course if we start on it uh, today, on February 12th, by April uh, 30th, uh, you know, with, with uh, you know, good hard work, we should have it at, at certainly at the, at the key airports uh, in, in Canada. That doesn't mean that it'll be completely, likely will not be completely uh, eliminated, but we do see the potential for it to go to a five to seven day uh, quarantine, which is consistent, as I say, with the CDC and WHO and other recommendations like that. So it's a transitional phase. So it's a little bit of all of the above of what you said. It's a combination of heading from winter to summer, combination of giving enough time to establish testing capabilities, uh, consistent with the date that the government established on the uh, you know, suspension of sun destinations, uh, and really a, a good segue into having, uh, you know, sort of a, you know, not, not losing a second summer of, of, of travel for the industry. That, that makes sense. And so as, as the things open up, I'm just kind of curious, as, as capacity starts coming back, what should we expect in terms of cost? As, and I'm sure there's crew training to, to get current again and, and the fleets that are grounded. How should we think about kind of the cost ramp heading into the summer? Well, I'll turn over to Mike, but, but I, think, I think that what we've, what we've done, especially with our pilots, and especially because of the fact that we're also you know, uh, training this, for the 737 MAX, uh, you know, and if you look at the total number of employees that our Canada has kept on the payroll, remember we've kept about 50% of our employees on the payroll, even though we're operating at less at less than 20%. In fact, right now it's at 10% of our 2019 levels. We've had 50% of our employees kept. So, so we are we were we were mindful to to, to ensure that we are training to that uh, ability to ramp back up as things uh, turn, and that obviously while keeping our costs relatively under control with, with the benefit of the Q's program, we're able to keep more people employed and at the same time keep more of our, uh, keep, keep more of our, our uh, crews, our pilots and flight attendants uh, uh, current. Yeah, just to add a little more detail, I mean, there'll be some small incremental costs, immaterial costs on maintenance to bring the planes out of, out of storage. Uh, but for the most part, as Caleb said, we've kept our pilots uh, current and so there should not be a significant ramp up in cost as we uh, as we grow back into the market. Yeah, helpful. All right. Thanks, and and best wishes for the next chapter, Kellen. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thank you. The next question is from Tim James with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Uh, thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I guess I just my first question, looking at the Max, which um, started service uh, very recently, and, and you've obviously been offering bookings on it. Are you seeing any customer hesitation, i.e., booking away from the Max uh, flying, or or is it too difficult to gauge at this point, given the, the low overall traffic levels? No, for sure the traffic levels are lower, but we have seen no uh, no negative customer reaction, and okay. uh, I think that it's as simple as that. I think obviously we we. Uh, 
you know, our, our crews, uh, you know, were, were well trained. We ended up taking our time before reintroducing it. Uh, you know, so uh, you know, uh, thus far we've seen nothing in terms of customer reaction. And Kim, if I, if I can just add, uh, you know, in anticipation of the return, we also, you know, had very transparent communication with our customers, um, and you know, we had policies ready if customers did feel a little bit uh, uneasy, uh, that you know, we were prepared to. Uh, uh, to be able to, you know, offer changes on site, but uh, since the start, since the return to service, we have had, you know, vir virtually no requests to do that. Okay, great, that's good. Um, my next question, I'm just wondering, um, maybe a question for, for Mike to start with, I suppose, could you reflect back on 2020 overall and, and talk about how the airline was able to flex down costs uh, you know, which was really impressive, I think, when we look back. But relative to your expectations, you know, back in March and April, when I'm sure you were kind of, you know, scrambling to figure out what could be done, what ended up being different? Were you sort of, were there more uh, changes that you were able to make or was it more challenging? And, and maybe we should, you know, let's exclude labor from the conversation uh, here and, and maybe just focus on other notable parts of the cost structure. Yeah, you're, you're right, uh, Tim. You know, the original target of 500 in in hindsight was certainly uh, you know, certainly uh, you know not as aggressive as we otherwise could have put in place. Uh, but I think a couple things. One, uh, our teams have done a great job with our partners uh, renegotiating contracts. One, either to reduce the cost structure, or two, transfer fixed costs into variable costs. And so both of those initiatives have reduced our overall fixed cost structure. And, and obviously, you know, it is a, an eye-opening experience for, the, for any airline. Uh, and and a, certainly an objective is to make more of the cost structure variable, uh, given the, the amount of flying we're doing. And so I think, I think that second bucket of making fixed costs more variable was the one that we probably over-exceeded uh, our expectations on and was a large part of the, of the difference. And again, the 1.7 billion was also uh, capital reductions or deferrals. About half of it was capital reductions, deferrals, half of it was cost reductions. And uh, we were certainly aggressive, uh, and, and you know, had some difficult discussions with Boeing and uh, with Airbus on removing some of the fleets and, and or pushing them to the right. And, and so I think uh, you know, it's hard to estimate those type of benefits uh, going into it, but it's but certainly I think from a capital perspective. And from this uh, moving fixed into variable perspective, uh, we, we exceeded our expectations. The other thing to attempt to bear in mind is that we, uh, of course, you know, didn't know the depth and the length of this. And of course, as the year wore on, we ended up obviously having to cut deeper and deeper. You know, and again, this is not talking about uh, labor. I'm talking about, as Mike says, all of the various uh, contractual relationships, moving things to variable, uh, and, and of course, some of that 1.7 is, is, is uh, capital deferral as well, right? So. Uh, uh, and then we ended up you know, doing the same thing for 2021 and 2022 already with respect to our aircraft, you know, Boeing and Airbus, uh, you know, capital removals. And so we ended up going on a very, uh, you know, we ended up make, coming to the conclusion this was going to be, remember we said early on it was going to be three years. Uh, people were surprised we came out that early with that prediction, but we said it was going to be at least three years. And so we ended up you know, progressively taking steps throughout the year to uh, ensure that uh, we, we would have the, the financial bedrock not only in 2020, but also 2021 and 2022. Okay, thank you. Um, and, and just one more quick question, if I might. I just want to return. You, you've talked a little bit about the, 
kind of business travel, corporate travel. I'm just, you know, are you hearing any indications from corporate travel departments uh, in terms of future intentions? Um, and, and then do you have any thoughts you might have on what business travel will look like in, in two years relative to uh, what it was in 2019? Um, at this point in time, you know, and we're in contact obviously with our corporate customers on a regular basis. Um, as it stands, you know, we, we know that many have uh, policies uh, in place, uh, you know, to limit travel, uh, business travel. But at this point, we're not hearing, you know, any uh, you know, feedback that things will be extended further. I mean, we do know that business travel will take longer to return. Uh, but when it does, the ramp up, the ramp up should be, you know, relatively quick. But at this at this point in time, I mean, obviously the corporate demand is, you know, still at same levels as it was, to, you know, during 2020. There's very very little. Okay, great. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Chris Murray with ATB Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Thanks, folks. Good morning. I'm Kaylin. Uh, congratulations on your retirement. Um, first question, maybe for Mike. Um, so, Mike, you've got about a billion two of debt that's uh, current right now, which is a bit of a higher number than, than previous years. Um, so, I've got like, a couple thoughts on this as you as we move through the year. You know, how are you thinking about um, kind of the strategy around debt management? You have some high yield notes that are in there, um, and how would you think you would manage um, some of that debt repayment um, if, if, for instance, the government program doesn't come to fruition? Yeah, so it's a little bit higher this year uh, because of a four hundred million dollar U.S. unsecured coming due in April. Uh, that's that's you know normally we would have you know 800 million dollars a year roughly coming due uh, from from various uh, amortizations or maturities. Um, you're absolutely right, uh, Chris. Our focus right now is the government support uh, package, um, and and again, as Kill and, and and you know and we've said, you know, we're, we're optimistic uh, that we'll we'll reach you know a reasonable deal in 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 time certain. You know, failing that, uh, we'll look at different al alternatives uh, as to whether we want to replace the 400 million or, or just absorb it. And and you know, obviously the debt markets are still open; they're still they're still attractive uh, to Air Canada, and uh, we will certainly uh, you know take full advantage of them if we have to. Okay, I mean, I guess the other thing I'm trying to think about is we move kind of into more normal operations, maybe into 2022. How should we be thinking about? Um, your plan on bringing debt back down to, to kind of pay back, if you will, um, some of the some of the funds you've had to draw to deal with COVID. Yeah, well, that, that will a lot. Of course, that will depend on the uh, recovery. As, as you've seen, we've cut back our capital plan over the next couple of years, and so I think mm -hmm. that's a good first step in in taking the cash flow that we otherwise would would spend in capex, and and we will focus on debt. I mean, Chris. You know, for years our focus was balance sheet management, and it will continue to be balance sheet management. We will always balance the strategic and competitive uh, importance of this company, uh, but the balance sheet also plays an incredible part, and so we do not see uh, taking a different approach going forward uh, than what we've had in the past. Okay, no, that's fair. Um, and then my other question, um, and maybe Lucy, I don't know if you want to take this one, but just try and understand. Um, in the new Aero Plan program, 
Um, given that, you know, maybe some of your air travel is still going to be restricted until maybe the second half of the year, can you maybe walk us through about how some of the non-air aeroplan benefits work through the system for you guys? Um, you mean in terms of uh, in terms of performance or the types of... Uh yeah, in, term, in, term, in terms of performance, really, is what I'm trying to understand, is if there was any changes um, in the program that either gives you guys some additional revenue opportunities or anything like that. Yeah, for, for sure. And uh, as I mentioned uh, a little bit uh, earlier um, in, my, in my comments, uh, you know, one opportunity for us is when you look at the spend on, on uh, the credit card, that has shown a lot of resilience. So from that, you know, from that perspective, uh, it is a you know good revenue stream for us, and and we have you know further opportunities to be able to now to announce in the you know relatively near future. So from that perspective, even if obviously travel is a sector that's most impacted, we still have you know great opportunities on the, on the, you know in other um, other areas. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. The next question is from Cameron Dirksen with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Uh, thanks, Riga. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'll just maybe just ask one question, and it's, I guess for, sort of goes back to an earlier question just with regards to, I guess, the sort of long-haul premium traffic opportunity. Um, and I guess the, the question is, if VFR traffic is sort of the first to come back or leisure traffic first to come back on some of these international routes when, uh, when travel restrictions ease, does it make any sense to sort of reconfigure the you know, seating in, in the wide-body aircraft? I'm, I mean, I'm thinking sort of premium economy would be a, uh, you know, a product that would be perhaps more in demand, and you know, a lot of other airlines have kind of indicated that premium economy is a, is a pretty profitable um, you know, product for them. So I'm just going to maybe talk about the ability to reconfigure seats uh, within the aircraft. I, I think, uh, no, listen, that's a, that's a great question, but in fact, the, the seating um, that we currently have on our wide-body airplanes is actually perfect for what we're facing. So we do have a good, uh, you know, in, in terms of LOPA, we have a good uh, seating for premium economy. So we do have potential to be able to get some really good uh, yield opportunity to buy up into the, the PY cabins international. And because our, our premium cabins are not as large as many other competitors, um, we're actually right-sized for the demand that we have. In, in past years, uh, you know, we had a pretty significant yield upside compared, you know, to, to many others as a result of that low pass. So as we go into the future, it's actually a good opportunity for us to not have to even consider reconfiguring wide-body airplanes to, you know, better fit the demand. What we have is actually going to be... Uh, you know, perfect for us. Okay, no, that's that's great. I'll, I'll leave it at one question. Thanks very much. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. The next question is from Jamie Baker with J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, everybody. Most of my questions have been answered. I know we're uh, short on time, so let me jump uh, right in. Once you're back to 2019 capacity levels, how much improved do you expect your XCO cost structure to be? And curious if this analysis takes into account the freighter conversion and the transat uh, integration. Yeah, Jamie, we have certainly some internal objectives. We're not ready to share those to the market right now, uh, like you know some some of the U.S. airlines have done. Uh, and it does depend on your assumptions around the freighter, how big the freighter business is, uh, mm -hmm. uh, escalation of costs over that period of time. Uh, but, but 
certainly our, uh, like most airlines, our objective is to, to is to become more efficient. Could you at least give some goalposts? Does your analysis start in a single-digit percentage category and end in double-digit category? Is it all single-digit, something like that? We're, we're just not ready at this time to, okay. to, okay. to provide that color. And uh, second question, and I apologize for missing the earlier clarification, the aircraft financing is included in the cash burn guidance, so it's included in that net $2 million a day? Yes, it is. It okay, is. perfect. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Thank you. The next question is from Stephen Trent with Citigroup. Please go ahead. Good morning, everybody, and, and thanks for taking my question. Most of my questions have been answered as well, but just one quick one for you in the interest of time. You know, when we think about, uh, you know, ESG goals, uh, you know, your Star Alliance partner south of your border, uh, for example, highlighted some collaboration uh, with an electric plane developer. You know, how are you guys thinking about aside from the refleeting, you know, carbon capture programs or kind of lo your longer-term view, uh, you know, some color on that would be, would be helpful. Yeah, Stephen, it's Mike. Um, great question and something we're very, very focused on. We haven't announced any, any longer-term goals. We've been actually a leader in this area, and we are exploring all the different areas, including alternative fuels. Uh, we are working with United on, on, on some things as well and, and sharing some information. Uh, we will, uh, over the next little while, uh, spend a fair amount of time uh, looking at uh, what kind of goals we want, we want publicized. And so uh, stay tuned on, 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 uh, on us providing that information to the marketplace. And I'll just add Stephen uh, to that as well, Kalen here. Uh, you know, uh, we, we, as Mike said, we've been a leader in this in this area, uh, but of course in 2020 we were quite quiet in this area. And that of course was as a result of, uh, of the extreme distress that uh, the airline and the industry was under. Um, but in addition to alternative fuels, we are actively looking at a carbon capture solution. Uh, we're also, you know, as Mike mentioned, this is uh, something that is uh, at the level not only of uh, Air Canada's uh, executive committee, but right up to the level of, uh, of the board. And I think this is one of those that I'd say watch this uh, space. I know Mike will do some great things with it with our uh, uh, you know, environmental uh, ESG uh, team. Um, very, very specific things, and, and I suspect that it'll be, uh, it'll, it'll be uh, unveiled uh, over, the coming, uh, over the coming months, for sure, later this year. We have some very specific targets as an industry, as you know, through Corsia, which, which is one level. We also have uh, you know, some, some uh, requirements in, inside Canada. Uh, and we have some uh, requirements uh, in, you know, potentially in other jurisdictions like Europe as well. But leaving all of that aside, there are some very specific targets that Air Canada itself has, uh, uh, which, which have been worked on well before the 2020 year and which were put on pause during 2020. Oh, appreciate that. And thank you very much, Mike, and congrats on your retirement, Kellen. Appreciate the thank time. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you. This will conclude the question and answer session. I would now like to turn the meeting back over to Ms. Murphy. Thank you, Elena, and thank you everyone for joining us on our call today. Thank you very much. Thank you. The conference has now ended. Please disconnect your lines at this time, and we thank you for your participation. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website.
See you next time. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.